All right. We have a lot to get through and we don't want those pizzas to burn. So let's get going. Uh, Today is the final um, part of our Genesis series. And we're going to conclude with Genesis chapter 11. Mostly because Genesis 1 to 11 is considered to be kind of one literary unit. And then from chapter 12 onwards, you have a more specific story about Abraham and his family and what happens to them. And we will get to Abraham today. Um, But um, before we get into what we're really going to talk about today, it would be good to do a little recap. I just want to frame the story of Genesis 1 to 11 this morning a slightly different way than what we've looked at before, um, but hit all the major, the major highlights that we've worked through. So at the beginning, we saw that uh, Genesis begins with God's creation of the world, and at the pinnacle of this creation are human beings, male and female, and they are made in the image of God. And God wants to rule the world through his image-bearing royal representatives, and he commissions them to develop creation on his behalf and under his good rule. And in Genesis 1 verse 28, it says that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And so God's mission for humans actually includes the forming of families who will then send out members to create other families. And so humanity will spread across the earth and fulfill God's good good command in this way, in Genesis 2:14, we, we see this: A man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so you get this beautiful picture of the unity between husband and wife that's going to make this mission possible of a family that sends out members to make other families who then make other families and fill the earth um, with this large family of humanity. Um, And the the man and woman, the husband and wife, are united as one flesh. And the lack of shame... Sorry, James, can we just leave the scripture? I'm going to be talking to them. So um, the lack of shame that they have um, is expressed through this nakedness. It shows a complete openness that they have to one another, a knowledge that they have of one another, and an intimacy that they have with one another. But in order to fulfill this calling that God has given to the humans, they have to be not just united with each other, but they also need to be united with God. They have to trust God's definition of good and evil as they go about ruling and filling the earth. But instead, as we know in the story, the humans listen to the serpent and decide to define good and evil for themselves. They take the fruit, which severs their trust in God and fractures the relationship that they have with each other. And so the man and woman who are created to be one flesh now have a relational distance between them. And the intimacy and openness of their nakedness now becomes a source of shame and hiddenness, both from God and from each other. And while God graciously clothes them to cover their shame, the damage has already been done. And God evicts them from the garden for their own good, in case they eat the tree of life and become permanently fixed in their broken state. And although there's some hope when Cain is born some hope that he might be the answer to this rebellion that they've undertaken. He only deepens the the family fractures when he murders his brother Abel out of jealousy over Abel's offering of worship. And so the relational damage that's between Adam and Eve now becomes a relational damage between sons, brothers, and parents. 
and it's no longer just um, a, 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 a fracture of shame and of blame, now physical violence that leads to death is involved. But despite the horror of Cain's sin, God declares his protection over him as Cain goes off into exile. Cain marries his wife and then builds a city which actually becomes a hub of culture and industry. If you read, there's metalworking going on and uh, music fills the city. There's all this stuff going on in the city. But one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, becomes the first man to take two wives. So Lamech's action further disrupts the unity of the family. You can't be one flesh with two wives. And so he's kind of defining marriage for himself. And not only that, um, Lamech, like his forefather Cain, also kills a man. But unlike Cain, who was sorrowful about it um, after committing murder, Lamech boasts about it. And he uses God's protective grace over Cain as a license for his own murder. Well, if Cain got away with it, then surely I will get away with it, and I'll get away with it even more so. And so Cain's city that he built, which was full of culture and of technology, now becomes a city that's filled with violence. And then when we get to Genesis 6 and God looks over the whole land, he sees that instead of filling the earth with blessing and goodness, humans have instead filled the earth with violence. The human family has become so deeply divided by the destructive effects of evil and sinful self-centeredness that God decides to cleanse the earth and start again. And he identifies who? Noah and his family. He takes a family and he identifies them as the hope for a new creation and he sends them onto the ark, which is almost like a kind of mini Eden floating on the water. And when they land on dry ground, Noah plants a garden a vineyard, and he and his family are blessed by God in a way which echoes the blessing God gave to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 9, 1, it says this, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So here we have God taking Noah and his family and saying, go out and fill the earth with families. But like Adam and Eve, Noah takes the fruit and his nakedness is exposed. And like Satan, Noah's son, Ham, takes advantage of his father's condition. But like the Lord, his other sons, Shem and Japheth, cover his nakedness and shame with a cloak. And so once again, there's a conflict between God's way and the way of humans as a sinful fracturing of family relationships continues to frustrate God's vision for all of humanity. And then we get to chapter 10, and it begins this way with verse 1. It says, these are the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Children were born to them after the flood. And at first glance, this whole chapter looks like a genealogy of the sons of Noah. And it is that, but it's actually more than that. The whole of chapter 10 is actually kind of like a a map, a geopolitical map of all of the nations and tribes and groups in the known world at that time. And so, as you read through it, you pick up names of the sons of of, uh, Shem and Japheth of Ham that actually we know as nations or as territories. So if you look at at the sons of Japheth um, in verse 2, oh, that red's not good, is it? Um, So 
the descendants of Japheth, you've got uh, Javan there's what that says. Javan is actually um, what we know as Greece. Um, you've got Ashkenaz, what we now know as Eastern Europe. Uh, uh, Kittim, which is Italy. And Tarshish, does anybody remember where Tarshish shows up? Jonah. Jonah. Yeah, that's the place that's far, far away that Jonah's going to run to. Tarshish, they probably think, is on the Iberian coast of Spain. Um, so these are all real places, even though these are the children of, of Japheth. Um, and there are 14 nations that are listed under Japheth. And then we go on to the descendants of Ham. And you've got um, Cush. <laughs> I shouldn't have done the red, should I? Uh, you've got Cush up there. I promise you that says Cush. Um, <laughs> Cush is what we now know as Ethiopia. Um, Egypt, that one's simple. Um, you've got Put and you've got Canaan over here, which is the land that Abraham will eventually go to. Um, and so these are generally the south, the nations south and to the west of what Israel will eventually become. Um, and then you've got Canaan, which is the land that Israel will take over. And then in verse 15, you've got Sidon. Um, Sidon is a city that Jesus actually uh, ends up mentioning. And then you've got this whole list that um, um, Scottish people never like to say if you're preaching. The Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites. All these people that we know when, you, in, when the Israelites go into Canaan, um, these are the groups that, that, that are all there. Um, and there are 30 groups listed under Ham. And then finally you get to Shem's group. Shem is actually the, where we get the word Shemite or Semite. So these are the Semitic nations. Um, and it says at the beginning that Shem is the father of all the children of Eber. Eber is where we get our word Hebrew. So these are the Hebrew nations. Eberu is how it would be said. Um, and so um, all of these descendants are, are the Semitic peoples, a lot of them coming as part of the Hebrew tribes. These are the descendants of Shem. Um, and so under Shem, there's 26 nations or territories listed. Now, if you've been listening as we've been going along and you've been counting it up, anybody been counting up how many nations there are? Uh, 12? No. no. 70 nations in total, if you've been counting up, are in this list. Now, to the Hebrews, the number 70 was very important. 70 is a number of uh, totality or completion. So the fact that there are 70 nations in this list is a literary device. It's meant to give you the impression that it's talking about the totality of the human family. All of these nations represent the totality of humanity um, on the earth. And this is unique. There's nothing else quite like this list, although it sounds like just a list of nations and names. There's nothing quite like this in ancient Near Eastern literature. Um, in the ancient Near East, nations generally had mythologies that claimed that their nation was the true humanity and all other people groups were subhuman. So we're the real humans. All, these, all of our enemies are not human. But what the Bible claims is that through Noah, all of humanity shares a common source. That all of humanity are made in the image of God and can be traced back through Noah and his family. And that despite the differences among people groups, humanity is actually a unity. It's a family because we're all made in the image of God. And that's why if you ever hear any theology or political platform or cultural ideology that states that one group of humans is naturally superior to another, 
we must resist it as a lie from Satan. While there may be a diversity of tribes, of nations, of cultures, all people belong to the family of humankind because we all share in the image of God. And in fact, it's only as a united whole that humanity fully reveals that image. But there's something in the list that is troubling um, and there's a little inkling um, of disunity. So although we're talking about the united nature of all of humanity, the list tells us there's something that's not quite right here. At the end of each group of nations, so when you get to the end of Japheth's list and Ham's list and Shem's list, you find this. It would say, these are the descendants of Japheth, Ham, or Shem by their families, their languages, their lands, their nations. And the very end of chapter 10 goes further. In verse 32, it says, these were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations. And from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Now, divided doesn't sound like a good word. Um, The blessing of God was that people would be sent out to fill the earth. But why would chapter 10 use the word divided? What has happened to cause this division among the nations? And the answer actually begins at least earlier on in chapter 10, and I skipped over it to look clever. But we're going to go back and look at this now in verse 8. There's a little narrative that kind of interrupts Ham's genealogy. And it says this, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He was the first on earth to become a mighty warrior. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, then a whole other list of cities, including Nineveh. So Nimrod um, was the first mighty warrior and was a mighty hunter. And this idea that Nimrod's a mighty warrior um, likely means that he was among the first people to possess the kind of power and authority to assert leadership over others and to gather people groups around him. In verse 10, he's actually described as, as having a kingdom. Um, and the fact also that he's mentioned as a mighty hunter is important because uh, Mesopotamian rulers were celebrated for their hunting prowess. So what we get here is a picture of a guy who's having authority and leadership over others, who's got rule, ruling characteristics, and, and who's building cities. This is the first empire builder, is who Nimrod is. He's creating an empire for himself. And the first city that, that, that he builds is Babel in the land of Shinar. And the word translated here as Babel is the same word that later in the Bible will be translated as Babylon. In the Old and New Testament, Babylon is a symbol of the way that human empire rebels against God in hubris, pride, debauchery, violence, and oppression. And so there's a link here between this guy Nimrod and what would later on become the nation or the empire of Babylon. Chapter 10 ends, it tells us that all the nations have been divided and chapter 11 is actually a flashback. So chapter 11 doesn't follow on chronologically from the end of chapter 10. Chapter 11 gives us the explanation for why all of the nations have been divided. And it starts like this in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. 
And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So remember, chapter 10 told us that the nations all had their own languages. Here, this is before that, they share one language. And that sounds good, right? Sounds good that we would all speak one language. Um, My wife speaks Spanish and so do my children. I fear they are plotting against me because I I can't understand it or very little. I wish I could speak Spanish. I probably should learn. It's good when we all speak the same language. So, so far, that's all right. Verse three, it says, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So why are bricks a big deal? Well, this is a huge technological advancement. They're moving beyond just using stone. Now they're able to form bricks, which makes construction much easier. And this isn't a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. But where else have we heard about a city where people have made cultural and technological advancements so, so far in the story? Cain's city. And what ends up happening in Cain's city is it becomes a city of violence. So there's just a little mm, bookmark that, okay. Um, and then on to verse 4 it says, They said, Come, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the whole face of the earth. So in verse four, we get the real notion that something about this unity and endeavor of the humans is off. We'll start with the last part. They don't want to be scattered abroad across the earth. This is in direct defiance to God's command to go forth and multiply and fill the earth. Um, That's what God said to Adam and Eve. That's what God said to Noah and his family. But out of fear, this people will not comply with God's blessing. And they've they've actually even reworded what God said. So God says, go forth and multiply and fill the earth. And they've reworded it as to be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Where else have we seen God's commands reworded? Eve, yep. And so these people set out to define goals for themselves. And their goals center on building a city for their security, to avoid the diversity that comes from human families going out into the world, and to coerce everyone to stay together. Secondly, the city and its tower will also help them make a name for themselves. The mission of God was to create humans in his image that they might share in his creative work and lead the creation in glorifying their creator and praising his name. But here, the humans are seeking a glory of their own. And finally, the tower that they aim to build will have its top in the heavens. Now, that could just mean that they want to build a really, really, really tall tower. We see that going on all the time. We were watching a video on YouTube the other day about the tallest penthouse in Manhattan. And it's just, I can't even remember how tall it was. And um, Sandra was saying that if she even walked down the stairs in that place, she would just feel sick because you just can see. <laughs> you're so high up, you can see it the whole of New York. So it could just mean they wanted to build a really, really tall, impressive tower. But in the context, um, I think the context leads us to assume that they're making a bid to ascend into the place where God dwells. And the tower that they were building was most likely called a ziggurat. We've got an image of a ziggurat here. 
Um, so these structures were really common in Mesopotamian culture. The Israelites definitely knew about them. Um, and these were the forerunners of the pyramids. Um, and so you see here they had steps built into the side of them. And the steps were primarily built not for going up into the heavens. The steps were built for the gods to come down to where the humans were. So this is like a help, an executive stair for the, for the gods to come down and be with the humans. Um, and they also had um, um, priests would also go up the steps to the little um, kind of temple structure at the, begin- at the top. And there they would leave. That's where the gods were supposed to hang out when they were off duty from not being worshipped. And so they would leave food there and they would make sure there was a place for the gods to sleep. And sometimes they would leave young women there for the gods, to, um, for the gods pleasure. And so all this thing was about meeting the needs of the gods. And there's actually another uh, image here, James, if we go to the next one. Um, this is actually there's a ziggurat that still, it still exists. This is in Ur. Do you know who came out of Ur? Abraham. So this is a, a Mesopotamian ziggurat that they, um, that they excavated in Ur, and you can see it's kind of of the same, the same shape there. That's in Iraq, actually, where Iraq is now. Um, so the idea is that they were building something that reached up to the heavens where the gods lived and provided them a stairwell to come down to be worshipped. And the belief was that if you could provide for the needs of the god, that God would then support you and strengthen your nation. So this is pagan worship. It's a quid pro quo. It's, it's God, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. It's not worshiping God because God is good. It's worshiping God to get from God what you want. And the humans have assumed that they can unite together and bring heaven and earth together with the focus on strengthening their own empire building and their own power. So what they're saying is we will not be sent out as God wants, but we will secure ourselves in this fortress. And not only that, we will force God to come to us and serve us. We're not interested in making God's name great. We want God to make our name great, and we're going to make him do it. And in verse 5, God uses the executive stair. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So... God does come down, but he doesn't give in to their demands. He sees that they are unified, but they're unified around the wrong thing. They're unified around the same thing that got Adam and Eve and Cain and Lamech and Ham and others in trouble. Rebellion against God's good plan for them out of fear, self-interest, and defining good and evil for themselves. So the sin is not building a city or a tower. The sin is elevating themselves and their own human structures and society to the place of God. And such is their potential as image bearers of God that God has to stop this collective human evil in its tracks so their rebellion doesn't pervade everything. In the same way that God banished Adam and Eve from the garden for their own good, he's going to disrupt this human rebellion for their own survival. And if you think about it, the pattern in Genesis so far has been that 
when people elevate their own interests and their own wisdom above God, um, it always ends up resulting in violence and bloodshed. So think about it. This is a collective humanity who are now elevating their, their interests above God and their wisdom above God. And the potential for violence is exponential. So God has to put a stop for it. And Walter Brueggemann, he says it like this. He says, the unity of the humans is a unity sought by fearful humanity, organized against the purposes of God. This unity attempts to establish a cultural human oneness, a self-made unity in which humanity has a fortress mentality. It seeks to survive by its own resources. It seeks to construct a world free of the danger of the holy and immune from the terrors of God in history. It's a unity grounded in fear and characterized by coercion. A human unity without the vision of God's will is likely to be ordered in oppressive conformity, conformity and it will finally be in vain. And so God scatters the humans. And this is a punishment, but it's also another example of God's grace because God desires both unity and diversity. And so the scattering of the groups here is not necessarily bad. It ought to remind each of the people groups that their commission is to spread out and to fill the earth with God's goodness. And it should bring each of them into dependence on him. The unity that God desires is a unity around his will and purposes. God desires that the nations would be united in covenant relationship with him. And through that relationship with him, they would be united with each other. The humans of Babel, oh, Alistair said it. See, I was trying to say Babel because I think that's better, you know, but you, can't, you just, I said Babel all my life. Um, the humans of Babel have chosen self-interest, pagan worship, and defiance in order to make a name for themselves. And the result is this dividing of the human family. At the end of Genesis 11, the pattern of the fractured family that began with Adam and Eve and carried on through their offspring has resulted in this division amongst the nations. But God is gonna bring about the unity of the family of nations in another way. In that long list that we looked at earlier on in chapter 10 of all of the nations, there was one nation that wasn't named. Do you know which one? You're gonna kick yourself. Israel. Israel. Yeah. Israel's not named in the list, and that's deliberate. Because it shows that Israel's origin is not merely human. It's not the initiative of humans. Israel's origin is the initiative of God. And so, at the beginning of chapter 12, God calls a nobody. His name is Abraham. And he calls him out of the scattered nations, out of the nations scattered from Babylon. And do you know where God meets Abram? Not in a tower, not in a building, not in a temple. He meets him in the wilderness where he is. The same is true of Isaac and of Jacob and of David and of numerous others. God will not be contained or beholden to human structures. And here's what God says to Abram. This is right after the Babel story. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country so he's sending him out. 
and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So do you see? Through Abram and Sarah, God is going to create a family, a nation that is to be united under God's will, and God will send them out. And unlike the people of Babel, they will not have to seek their own glory because God will make their name great as they seek his glory. And it's through Israel that God will bless all the families of the earth. They are to be the example of a nation, of a family united together under God's will. And through their honoring of God, they are to unite together all the nations. Just like Abram, God sends Israel out from the place where they are living to spread across the land. And throughout their history, Israel will come under the oppression of other human empires. Like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and Egypt. But God delivers them from the threat of human power, um, except when they abandon their relationship with God and unite themselves to the powerful nations around them out of fear. So they abandon God's will for them and they, they join with these oppressive nations. And when that happens, they end up divided and scattered. And Abram's story begins with him being called out of the nations that are scattered from, ba- from Babel. And at the end of the Old Testament... It ends with Abram's children in captivity in Babylon. And at this point, it seems that God's dream for the nations is over. But the New Testament begins with the Son of God who is sent out into the world. And he becomes the representative of Israel who's perfectly aligned with God's mission. He faces the power of the Roman Empire, the self-serving religious authorities, and the temptation and powers of sin. And although they unite together to violently kill him, he overcomes them through his resurrection. And the disciples that Jesus had gathered together around him like a family, and and he's united them to God's mission, he says this to them in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then on the day of Pentecost, the followers of Jesus are all together in a room and the Jews from all of the nations have gathered in Jerusalem. And just as at Babel, when the Lord came down and confused languages and scattered the nations, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down upon the followers of Christ and empowers them to speak in the languages of the gathered nations to declare the truth of the gospel. And it says this in Acts 2, verse 5. There were devout Jews from every people under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered. This is the sound of them speaking in the different tongues. Because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, it's pretty comprehensive, 
In our own languages, we hear them speaking to us about God's deeds of power. Through Jesus, the faithful representative of Israel, the families of earth are now being united, not around their own self-interest, but around the gospel. And look at this, God doesn't change their language. He speaks to them in their own language. He doesn't cause them to hear a single language. He speaks to them in the language that they speak. Because the gospel doesn't convert people to a culture or a language. It converts people to a person. Christianity doesn't do away with diversity. It unites diverse people groups around Christ. And then just as the church is getting established and settling down in Jerusalem, God allows a persecution to come upon the church so that they have to scatter wider than the city. Philip preaches in Samaria and converts an Ethiopian. Peter is invited to the house of an Italian centurion where his um, whole family believe and are filled with the Spirit. Barnabas and Paul are sent out to the Gentile nations to preach the gospel. But those who believe in Jesus are not forced to become Jewish. They remain Gentiles, but they're grafted into the family of God that started with Abram. They are part of the nations that are blessed through Abram's son, Jesus. And they become part of that family so they too can then bless those from other nations. And in Jesus, the fracturing of human families that began with Adam and Eve is reversed. Through him, all the nations of the earth are called to join in the mission of filling the earth with God's glory and goodness. And this vision is fully realized in Revelation. Revelation 7 says this. John says, after this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Those from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, and all languages now say this is our God. And that's the future. It's a story that comes out of the division of Babel and God's salvation plan. And it's the future that God has in store for us. So what does it mean for us now? I think there's a few things that we need to consider. Anytime we try to set up a kingdom whose agenda contradicts God, it will be frustrated. And we do this personally, and we do it collectively. It's interesting that we use the term to climb the ladder when we talk about our careers. The higher you get, supposedly, the more secure you become. But if we construct a life around our agenda, if we set up our own kingdoms that are focused on us, if we're more interested in making our name great and having security than following God's call, then we will ultimately be frustrated and confused. And like the people at Babel, Babel, ugh, we demand God meet us in the life we have built for ourselves. God, you will come here to my life. I will not change for you. You will come and bless what I have built. But God doesn't respond to worship that is self-focused or an attempt to manipulate him. And, you know, listen, the Western church has become very good at this. We've built a Christian culture that emphasizes, um, it emphasizes the self. And it says that you can have everything you want 
and God will bless it. And we've appealed to the culture around us and tried to look as much as possible like it so that we aren't thought of as weird or as unusual. But at the moment, two things are happening. One is that our Christian culture that's been propped up by Christian celebrities who've used God to make a name for themselves and enrich themselves is being dismantled and torn down by God. And two, it's becoming harder and harder to try to blend into the culture and stay faithful to Christ. And God has called us to be a people who are less like Babel and more like Abram, to forget our agendas, to let go of our fear of security, and to join him in his mission. And anything less leads only to confusion. Another thing we need to think about is that God wants unity through diversity. God doesn't want us to be united around a singular cultural expression of Christianity. Do you know that the Western Christian church accounts for about 8% of Christians across the globe? This is a part of Christianity, but it's not the totality of it. Jesus wants those of different ethnicities and cultural expressions to be united around Jesus Christ and his truth. And the church ought to be a testimony to the scattered and alienated nations and people groups of the world that there is a way for people of different cultures and ethnicities not just to live together, but to thrive together. Not by doing away with our differences, but by bringing them together in a beautiful mosaic of worship and love for God and for people. And we are to be a witness that the family of humanity are all made in the image of God and that God welcomes all. And so if we want to have a church that's just folks like us, that's the spirit of Babel, and God will frustrate it. And finally, we need to be aware of becoming comfortable and staying put. As a church, we're talking about finding a building, which is brilliant. We've been a part of this church for, oh, I don't know, seven years, maybe longer than that. Eight years. Eight years. And we've always been setting up and tearing down. And this idea of having a building is brilliant. And I think it's a God thing. And it's a good thing if we think of it as a place from which each of us are sent out into the, our town and into our world and a place to which we can gather people back in to find their place in the family of God. But if we are going to think about it as our own wee corner where we can hide where we feel safe, where we can seclude ourselves and avoid being sent by God into the world, then we will be sadly mistaken. God doesn't dwell in buildings and when we get ours, he won't be trapped in there either. We need to resolve that we will join with God in his mission, that we will allow him to send us out into the world, to share the gospel, to see children of God birthed, to see the family of God expand, until we reach that vision of revelation where every tribe and nation will bow before Jesus and glorify God.